I thanks for tuning in today to the Inner Light with Ellen podcast. I'm Ellen Wyoming Deloy, and the next few um, episodes are going to be a little bit different. Um, as some know, especially if you've been following me for a while, I talk a lot about um, intuitiveness, coaching, personal development um, on this show. But I have this other part of my practice where I still do consulting work and organizational development support, communication support, equity diversity and inclusion support for organizations. And um, I'm working on one such project right now. And my colleague um, who I'm working with, Nathan Baptiste, he and I um, are, have put it together this mini series for you. So if you, this, this is really for you. If you want to know a little bit more about what on earth is going on uh, when when organizations are talking about equity, diversity, and inclusion initiatives. Um, you probably, if you're listening, you might work with an organization that's, that has a number of these things going on. So it might just be interesting to tune in to listen to hear um, expanded perspectives, other viewpoints. Um, Nathan is a trainer. He works with a number of institutions and agencies. I um, collaborate with him to bring in sort of the personal development work around grappling with the change of becoming not only an agency or an institution, but a person, like what it means for us on a personal level. And, and Nathan does this too, but we, it's nice to work with somebody on this. And, um, so it's, it's for you if you are in one of those workplaces or work situations. And here's the thing. It's also for you if this is not something you're exposed to, but you've heard about it a lot and you want to know more and you want to understand more. I mean, the world has been rocked a number of ways in the past number of years. And um, I, I do think it's more in the public lexicon now than ever. And also, maybe you have not been in a like larger institution workplace for a number of years or you work for a small business and these things are not rising to the surface or you don't see how they can apply to you. And so it's kind of in 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 that spirit as well that this might be of interest um i'll pause there that's long enough and um i hope that you enjoy this episode and if it sparks thoughts makes you really curious makes you interested please 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 share it with others who um you could talk about this with or who you want to um you know get their thoughts on it um and yeah that's that's about it thanks so much for listening you're listening to the Inner Light with Ellen podcast. I'm your host, Ellen Wyoming Deloy. I'm a coach in Portland, Oregon, who works with people across the US and occasionally the world. I help people to transition from where they are to where they want to be, removing limiting beliefs, barriers, and imposter syndrome along the way. On this show, I bring you conversations with leaders in wellness, spirituality, healing, mindfulness, and more. We also dive into themes around intuition, equity, racial justice, and what it means to be living here in the 21st century. I'm excited to bring you each episode. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen. And if you love the show, leave a five-star review so others can find us. If you want to learn more about my work and what I do, go to ellenwyomingdeloy.com. Thanks. Enjoy the episode. 
Hi, welcome. I'm really excited. I have been um, talking with my friend and colleague, Nathan Baptiste, for quite a long time about a number of issues, basically because we're working on a project together. And he and I have decided to engage in a few uh, live, well, live for us, but conversations um, focused around equity, diversity, and inclusion and um, organizational development kind of all together because it's what people are doing these days. And it's what we're working on. And I always just find my conversations with Nathan to be so deep and rich and authentic and insightful, even having been immersed myself in my own journey with doing this work over the past nine years now. And so uh, Nathan and I are going to engage in this mini series of conversations because it's uh, something I've really been wanting to share with everyone, and that's why we're here. Nathan, I've introduced you by name, but would you introduce yourself um, a little bit, uh, your background, and what you do in the world? Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you, Ellen. Uh, my name is Nathan Baptiste. Uh, I use he, him pronouns, identify as Black and mixed race, and I am the founder of EDI Mindfulness Consulting. Um, I'm a meditation instructor, and I like to blend these worlds of mindfulness and equity work, um, and particularly, well, in my personal life, but also in, in working with teams and, and professional environments and doing organizational work, as you mentioned. Um, and so I'm so excited to partner with you, Ellen, one, in our, in our projects that we have going on but also in these conversations to kind of take a, a deeper dive and have kind of a laboratory for conversation. Oh, I love that. A laboratory for conversation. Cause that always is what it feels like when we talk together. It's like, here are the 14 science experiments we have going on. And here are the 14 conversation threads we're going to try to follow in an hour and a half. <laughs> Um, but Nathan, you had some great ideas for how to kick off this first conversation. Um, would you mind framing that up for us? Yeah, absolutely. So we we were talking about how do we want to explore the topic of EDI, which is equity, diversity, and inclusion. Um, and because there's lots of questions, there's lots of confusions, and we've kind of all or we've both um, received a lot of, of these kind of inquiries and they come up in our, our workshops and in our engagements with teams. And so we thought let's 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 create this mini series and think about like key topics that we want to address. And so first on the list that I'm thinking about, if it sounds good to you, is what's the difference between ED and I, you know, what's the difference between equity, diversity, and inclusion? Um, sometimes it's only DNI that's referred to. Sometimes it's a mix. Sometimes belonging is thrown in that mix. Um, a lot of times there's sometimes Jedi is thrown in there. I think they call it Jedi sometimes if they want to put justice into that mix. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's a lot of conflation that can happen with mm. um, how these terms are use and certainly they're interrelated so it's not wrong to to have them as an acronym together but i do think there's some value in unpacking some of their distinctions 
Um, I feel like that's a great place to start. And I know that when you are out in the world doing trainings, um, this is the first place you typically start with a group because you don't have assumptions of where people are at in terms of their knowledge. And building shared knowledge and shared understanding and shared language is one of the key fundamental ways that you can actually create organizational change. And I, I just recorded actually today an episode for my regular show about our impatience for change and how, even though we think we can change our life right now, it's really just pausing and having a reflective moment. That is the big woohoo that helps you to start to gain momentum in a new direction. And so I feel like this is the perfect entry point for that. Like, let's take this pause. You might think you already know, and maybe you do. It's fine. I mean, feel free to listen to our point of view too, of what equity, diversity, and inclusion are. And I will not start with telling you what I think it is. I want to hear what you do. (laughs) All right. I love, I love the pause too. I think I have a feeling we'll be circling back to that because it ties so well to being mindful of how we're showing up in, in our lives, but also in, in being intentional with equity work. So we'll, we'll bookmark that to come back to. Um, yeah, so with with these terms, right, you've got, let's start with diversity, right? With diversity, just as a very simple reference point, usually organizations, when they're talking about diversity, they're talking about representation, right? They're talking about who's at the table, who's in the organization at different levels, who's being served, who are the clients, who, who are the communities that are, um, receiving uh, products and services. And, and it's that simple, right? Like, what are the numbers? Who's there? And who's absent? Who's missing? And it's important. Um, inclusion tends to be how people feel in a given space. How do they feel working at the organization? How do they feel as recipients of services? How, how's the treatment? How, do, how, how included do folks feel in an organizational culture? Do they, not only do they see themselves, but do they feel like they can be themselves, right? That tends to be the conversation around inclusion. Um, and then with equity, equity is usually thrown in there, or sometimes it's not even thrown in there when it's just referred to as DNI. But I would argue that we should be leading with equity. And equity is usually what's missing in that equity is is the harder work, in my opinion, of what decisions are being made by who and what are the power dynamics around that, right? So who has decision-making power? How are we shifting organizational cultures so that folks who are most disproportionately impacted in a negative way or left out of, you know, whatever the, the service or the, the, the decision-making process is, how do we make sure that their voices are centered in the decision-making processes, whether that's internal or community-facing? And as that might suggest, it's a deeper dive into structural change in organizations. It's not just who's in the building or who's you know, under our umbrella of services, it's also more of a reflection in the mirror of who's, who's burdened and who benefits from the way we structure our organization. 
So those, those are several key distinctions that I like to start with. And then we can also talk about how do you measure those things differently? Because equity is also about impact, which diversity and inclusion may not touch. Yeah. And I mean, there's like a lot to unpack from just kind of that, that framing up. And so just as like a, a brief recap from what I heard you just say, Diversity is looking at sort of like who's in the building. Do we have representation? Makes me think of, I actually, I started thinking of Hollywood movies where our representation is skyrocketing right now. But I started to wonder like how included do those diverse actors feel in decision-making processes about the film that's being made, right? So there's the inclusion piece in terms of their, yeah, they feel included, but to what extent are they fully integrated included or are they included like on a surface level where I used to joke in the late nineties that because anime was like a big thing that I was suddenly in style. Cause I'm like half Asian. I was like, anime's in, I'm in, it's great. Like I'm suddenly a thing. Um, and now I, I feel very included when I go to my regular grocery store and there's like four different kinds of kimchi I can pick. I'm like, dope. And I found my new favorite kimchi brand because of that, because I don't always go shop at the Asian markets. (laughs) But um, so I, I love I love those two. And when you described equity, it was like that's how you actualize you make real diversity and inclusion. Cause I suddenly pictured in my mind a boardroom where you have a very diverse like worker set of the company, but maybe the boardroom is not very reflective of its employees at this point. And so the decisions are still really made at a certain level. So yes, they've worked on their DNI. We've got way more people of color working in all of these departments and everyone's included because we've got um, employee resource groups for all of these different folks. But it didn't go all the way to the top. And so there is not yet equity at that organization, though they may be doing a very good job on their pathway. It shows and demonstrates that you need equity to actualize what diversity and inclusion are trying to do. Yeah, I love that. It, it, and it's, it's about sustainability, right? Because if you can't, you can, you can, I used to be in recruitment, right? In, in higher ed, you can, recruit folks from different backgrounds, but if the place that they're recruited to is not inclusive, is if it's not also changing its structures to make sure that folks have a representative voice at all levels, how long will they stay, right? Or how, or and if they do stay, what's their level of engagement and feeling like things are changing for the better? Right? So a lot of folks might put up with things that they don't like. And that's kind of that environment of we love inclusion, we love diversity, but you need to assimilate to one right way of doing things. You need to play by the narrative that we say, which is I loved your, your analogy to Hollywood, right? Because sure, we're getting more diverse representation each decade, let's say, but and the narratives are gradually becoming more diverse as well as we gradually get more diverse directors and writers and so forth. But that's lagging behind the visual representation on the screen. So it's a, I think that's a great comparison to organizations in general around we might have diverse numbers in certain areas, but are we actually changing the narrative? Are we actually changing and allowing more diverse representation in decision-making, right? And and not only allowing it, allowing is not even the right word, but 
are we proactively seeking it, right? To make sure that equity is front and center so that folks are able to, not just because they represent a different gender or, or different races or ability Religion styles. or, yeah. And, and all our different demographics, not just that they're, that is important. That's the diversity piece that they're at the table, but they could also be reproducing models that are inequitable. Right. Yeah. Everybody can have unconscious biases or prejudices that that disadvantage different groups in their decision making process. So it's not just diversity. The equity piece is being proactive to say whose story is being told here and who's totally out of the picture and who is telling that story. And here's this. I don't want to put you totally on the spot, but I'm, I might. <laughs> Because what I, I what I want to dive into a little bit here, and I think that we'll be able to get to this through like a series of conversations, but as we talk about equity and in our experience, I know with the organizations or the teams that you and I have worked with and have talked about, it can be very challenging to, to um, because people like understand it and then they kind of freeze is sort of what I've noticed. Like, okay, yeah, we need to do equity and seek out these other voices and bring it more into the room. And then there's a freeze moment. And what I interpret the freeze as sometimes is, does that mean that I'm no longer valuable? Mm. Does that mean that my voice is going to be silenced? Um, because these are the decision makers, the ones who are deciding to bring in these different trainings and how they want to run their organization. And then this is what I like to look at is the fear that gets in the way of doing equity work. And I think that there can be so many ways that fear shows up. Fear shows up as resistance to change, shows up as just extreme discomfort. We don't have practice sitting in discomfort. Um, but as you have worked with organizations, I'm not asking you for the answer, but I want to ask you for a perspective of what have you witnessed being the fear that people have around equity, maybe sometimes explicitly stated if someone's being very brave and vulnerable and sharing, this is why I'm afraid about how this work is going to go forward, um, or implicitly that you've just picked up on over the course of months working with a team or an organization? What are some of the fear points people have around equity and why it's been kind of a big, a bigger deal than the revolution of sustainability and diversity in the 90s and early 2000s? Wonderful, wonderful topic to explore. Um, so I'll offer just a few avenues of many, but, but one area that, that I think about when I think about what are the common fears that are coming up in conversations with folks at different organizations from the context of wanting diversity and inclusion and equity, not even, not even talking at this point about folks that are, are entrenched against it or don't see the value in it. The folks that They're not do- listening to this anyway. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, just speaking from that kind of audience, what I'm observing and, and seeing, you know, in different workplaces that I've been at as well, is, you know, there's a fear of making a mistake, right? There's there's a fear of being imperfect. There's a fear of stepping on people's toes, saying the wrong thing, putting our putting our, our uh, proverbial foot in our mouth around like, oh, I, you know, that was a microaggression. Oh, that was that was insulting or hurtful in some way. And that was not my intention and I feel horrible for doing it, right? So there's a lot of kind of that guilt and shame that can come up that paralyzes, to your point, 
people from wanting to get engaged, especially if they aren't living that perceived experience of being underrepresented. I think folks tend to naturally feel um, like they've got some really important things to share, understandably, when they are living a marginalized experience, when they are, when their social identities, whether that's by, you know, again, by gender, ability, status, race, uh, religion, so forth, when, when there are some impacts that they're disproportionately facing that are disfavorable in an organizational culture or in terms of services, accessibility, and so forth, um, of course, they've got some insights to share. And when folks aren't living that experience, a lot of times they think that they're not qualified to participate in the conversation. And this is a very, I think, important and nuanced point um, because we don't want to, you know, I identify as a heterosexual male um, and because I'm not feeling, mar- I'm not marginalized based on those identities, I don't want to fall into the mindset of, well, I can't participate in this conversation. I need to be looking at how am I amplifying voices of folks who are experiencing marginalization. When there's a gender pay gap, if my voice isn't, if, if I have a position of influence and my voice isn't part of that conversation, that's a disservice to equity, right? To create, to being a part of co-creating equity. Now it's nuanced because I also don't want to speak over folks, right? Or speak for other folks, right? My, my, my job as an ally or an accomplice, different terms for this, um, when we're not living a marginalized experience is how do we show up in support of more equity for folks that aren't getting a fair share? So what is that? That's a question Like I was starting to ask it and then you totally went in this direction is what would be an aspect? Well, there's actually a couple things. I want to back up a teeny little bit because um, a lot of people also think um, going back to just the premise of equity, diversity and inclusion. And I promise we'll circle back um, of it just being racialized. Right. Racial equity, racial diversity, racial inclusion, because that's kind of the big one. That's the most noticeable, certainly in terms of like what things look like. But you are doing a very good job, and I want to highlight this for listeners, of talking about different um, marginalized or non-marginalized, repressed or non-repressed groups. And and you're identifying here that as a heterosexual male in a space where there's a conversation around other issues where you're not marginalized, you can show up in in allyship or being an accomplice. Um, And so we are really talking about the multiple ways that we have multiple identities that show up in the world that benefit or don't benefit, or maybe you're just completely neutral to what the systems are um, set up for. So I wanted to just make a brief caveat that we're talking about multiple aspects of identities and the ways that we have structures um, that support or don't support them. And then to get to this point around not stepping over because you could be an extremely enthusiastic ally and then suddenly without realizing it because you're so used to being able to speak so freely, perhaps without being um, pressed back or 
push down to start to speak for other people. And I think I can resonate with being guilty of this myself in a number of avenues over the course of my life. Cause I've always been sort of like an advocate. I want to like go help, but I didn't stop and ask first, like, is this the best way that this could be done? Is this what you actually need? Or is this just my assumption about what you need from my, my position of privilege? Right. Sure. I used to teach ESL and I had a lot of students learning English from different countries. And I was very like, guard dog a little bit about them. Like I wanted to make sure everyone treated them well, but and they didn't necessarily always ask if this is the kind of help that they needed. Right. Um, and so I want to ask, I may have just prefaced it a little bit, but what are some ways that people can think about if they are in a position of privilege, they do want to support equity. They don't feel like they're misrepresented in this scenario. What's it look like to do it in the day-to-day in a way that can be helpful? Yeah, I think that's an important question. I would actually suggest that we make a whole episode on this topic because okay. there's a lot of things to explore, but I'll just say... Let's do uh, a nugget and then we'll have another episode on this. <laughs> no, because yeah, there's a lot to unpack in, in that question. It's really Nathan's big. eyes just got like really big, like Ellen <laughs> just asked the biggest question. Stop it. <laughs> just kidding. It's, anyway. No, it's, it's great. It's a deep exploration, but I'll just, yeah, as a nugget, I'll just suggest that when we want to be supportive allies um, and, and we're not living the marginalized, a marginalized experience around that specific identity, whether that's you know by race or gender or ability status and so forth, um, I think we need to stay humble first and foremost. And that doesn't mean that we give ourselves a pass and, and to not participate in the conversation, but by humble, I mean, we need to not assume, to your point, with your example, not assume that we know what's best for other folks. And we also need to be humble in recognizing that if we're like most people that research suggests, we have biases, right? We have intergroup social identity biases, to be specific, right? And they tend to favor... um, cultures of dominance in society, right? Or cultural identity groups that predominantly hold power. And that's different than being a minority or a majority, right? Because you don't have to be a majority to be in a society as a group holding power. Sometimes that's the case and sometimes it's not. So whiteness is a case where it's both a a numerical majority when that's shifting, And it's also uh, an ideological um, framing of superiority that people may or may not believe in intentionally, but our culture, our society um, will will make it the norm, right? And will make experiences of white identity the norm. And for example, right, when ways we can measure that is in how people are paid, right, on average, uh, and by gender, the same along the same way, males and white folks are paid more on average for the same work. Resumes, uh, studies of resumes that are identical except for names that identify different gender and race, um, will get disproportionate favorable reviews and advancement when they're identified as white and at times when they're identified as male. So these are, these are ways that we normalize and standardize 
certain identity groups and make and, and that's a way of creating male superiority or white superiority not because that, that's an inherent truth but because society values them more and that can happen unconsciously we can do that unconsciously I just have, you just reminded me of a study I recently read that fascinated me on this very point around the unconscious bias towards whiteness, um, that even if we don't believe in it and we strongly like want to be equitable and anti-racist, that it's still in the soup that we were raised in, which gets to the systemic level of how this can be so hard to work on. Um, but the study I'm like digressing, um, was about names and faces and, um, people perceived. So like, I'm a mixed race person and I can look very Asian or very more mixed race, ambiguous, depending on people's context. But because I have a name like Ellen, I am more likely to be seen as less Asian and more white. But if I were raised with like my grandmother's name, like Sun could, excuse me, Sun Kun, I would be perceived as more Asian than white and have different responses, not just on paper and a resume, but like how people would physically view me once they knew my name. Um, and it was a study done on names, uh, like do people match their names? And then they were looking at it also from kind of an ethnicity context. I don't remember what the study was. I can't cite it. Sorry, but it was fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, that, those, these examples, just to share how it's important for us to be humble that we don't 100% always have biases on every topic, but we all pretty much have biases around mm-hmm. our social identities. Um, and there, of course, many folks have probably heard of the I, IAT test, and some perhaps not. Uh, you can Google IAT test Harvard or implicit bias test Harvard, and you can do some of these tests or not. It's anonymous, so you don't have to share your identification, but you'll get the results back online for free. And you can look at bias that you may hold by race, by gender, by uh, sexual orientation, and so forth. Um, so there's, there's ways to also start to do our own homework. Going back to that question of what can folks do, um, I would say the first thing that folks can do is educate themselves, right? And, and, and recognize that it's not out there only where the discrimination and bias is happening. It's in our collective decision-making within our organizations, within what we've been socialized with. Even even when we've been raised with values or adopted values of wanting to treat everyone equally, right? Even at, to your point, uh, studies show that there's still biases that are being played out. And so being able to do some of that self-work, and this is a good segue to mindfulness at some point is to look at how does this affect me even when it goes against what I believe. And I think what is really important here uh, to note kind of based around my interest with people on uh, freeing themselves from the guilt and shame of this work that can come up regardless of your identities, right? I think people are like, oh, it's all about white fragility or white guilt. And um, I know that it goes deeper because of what you're talking about. We have different biases and we can have internalized racism against ourselves, even though we don't believe in it, um, or 
intergroup dynamics and just saying like in taking that test, um, I have seen people react in different ways to the results of that test and um, in group experiences that I've been in. And um, what I think is important to know if you have never taken it is that you cannot take it personally. If you adamantly do not believe in racism or discrimination, and yet you have bias, like you can't trick the test because it makes you go very fast on gut instinct. Um, if you see results, you have to acknowledge that it's a part of being the product of the culture that we are raised in collectively. And that bias does not always mean choice. You can choose to use the information once you're more aware of your biases for how you proceed. But like you just said, you have to be educated on what's inside of you that may might be in a blind spot right now. And it's amazing what's tucked back in that blind spot corner. There are so many interesting things that might be uncomfortable to realize, but once you let it breathe some fresh air and put light on it, you can say, I choose not to follow this knee-jerk reaction bias. I choose to question it when I feel it arising in me. It does not mean I'm a bad person. It means that there's a part of my culture that has taught me this, that I am actively working to unlearn. Yeah, 100%. I, and I, you know, I think that's where EDI efforts often stall out if we were to talk about like what are the big barriers and challenges you know, that speaks to one of the biggest ones, which is folks distancing themselves from being a part of the, the work and needing to work on themselves, right? And wanting to externalize it, there's certainly external things that can be worked on, but when it's sanitized as just something that's an external issue, look at, you know, these disparities in education and home loans and, you know, these very specific issues, but never is it part of my own decision-making influence, never am I implicated in some of, some of these systems. Um, obviously, I'm not responsible for everything, but what's my connection, right? And, and it's a lot scarier, I think, and going back to fears, to say, wow, I might be complicit just by being a bystander, just by not saying anything, I might be complicit and I'll remove the mic and say I am complicit, all of us are complicit, when we allow systems to continually reproduce inequitable outcomes, right? And we might not have control to, but, you know, I can already hear the, the voice of resistance saying, but what power do I have to control these systems that are way bigger than me? True. And where do we have decision-making influence? How do we, instead of looking at how do we let ourselves off the hook or take ourselves out of the equation, how do, we, how do we be proactive and have the courage to see where am I or where can I be part of the equation, right? Where do I have decision-making influence? And when I say that, decisions that impact people, right? That could be anything from customer service and being somebody that meets people at the, at the door and, and who is asked to, you know, show identification and who is allowed to pass freely and just being self-aware of when we might have biases in that or who's reading resumes and they might be very similar, but if we're not consciously checking ourselves, we might be passing certain groups. Like I used to be a school teacher. There's a pretty well-known study of 
school teachers um, disproportionately calling on boys than girls in the classroom. Um, and often, usually, that's not a conscious intention, um, but, but it's an expectation that girls be quiet, right? And, and that's something that we're socialized with. And we might not agree with it consciously, but it doesn't mean that we might not be influenced by it un- unconsciously, right? As an unconscious bias. Um, and there's, you know, there's all types of different biases that we can start to check, but we can only do that if we're committed to making ourselves part of the equation, doing self-reflection work, reading, educating ourselves, taking part in trainings, not to just solve this external problem, but also to work on ourselves and and develop self-awareness. And you've just highlighted exactly why I left my job in 2018 and started inner light coaching because I got very flummoxed at the amount of resistance, shame, and guilt people had around doing this kind of work. And I realized how it was impacting so many parts of all of our lives to not be able to look deeper within at the uncomfortable stuff to say, this is mine. I keep it. This is not mine. I let it go and be able to move forward for the betterment of ourselves and others without the shame, mm-hmm. not yeah. having it all personalized. Yeah. I- the, the shame piece is such a big barrier um, and, and working on that is, is crucial. And, and approaching the work, I mean, I think part of what can be, can create more tension and conflict too is when equity work is approached in a call out versus call in approach. And I'm not saying that there's a right or a wrong way because sometimes things do need, I, in my opinion, it, it can be strategic to call some things out because if they're so egregious, and they're not changing police brutality, right? That needs to be called out, it needs to be named, but not in isolation, right? There also, I, I believe, needs to be inroads to how are we going to change these structures? If we need to remove things, we still are people, right? We're still human beings. We still need to work on not just what are we eliminating, but what are we creating, right? What are we replacing ineffective systems with? So. Yeah. Nature is not like a vacuum and we don't want something random filling it up. <laughs> That's a whole other can of worms. We, we um, Nathan, this feels like a really good segue. I know we have a couple topics I've just heard that we could dive into further. We could talk more about like the best ways to show up as ally or accomplicing or an accomplice. Um, I'm hearing uh, we could dive in further on bias. Uh, and I also like the, you mentioned mindfulness and having that be one of the tools to, um, bring into your experience or practice around the reflective practice for your own education as you kind of grow in this area. And of course, mindfulness is like totally a buzzword. It's a big thing. People are doing it these days. So we can talk about how it relates to EDI as well. And that is the name of your business, EDI mindfulness. Um, but before we close out, do you have anything else to say around the premise of this episode, which was just on equity, diversity, and inclusion? Yeah, thank, thank you for, for bringing it back, circling it back to that. So at, at, at the end of the day, so to speak, I, I think, why, so why does it matter, right? Why does, it, why does it matter to distinguish equity, diversity, and inclusion? I think there's a few really important kind of highlights about why this matters, particularly in the context of doing organizational change work. Um, 
diversity and inclusion are important parts of this work, and, but historically they've mostly been done just in those areas, in, in terms of increasing diversity and in terms of wanting to create an environment where people feel welcomed, even though structures aren't changing um, and, and essentially asking folks to assimilate to a system that can be oppressive, violent, uh, or silencing in many ways within an organization and across institutions in, in the entirety of society and in, in specific cultures, both you know, large scale and in the immediate context of an organization. So it matters so much to distinguish diversity, equity, and inclusion because you can be doing DNI work and still reproducing systems of oppression, right? You can still be reproducing systems that keep having all leadership be all white or all male or nearly all able-bodied and so on and so forth. And then wonder why well, we're so, you know, we want, we invite people, we say, you know, we, we, it's in our marketing. We, we want to make sure that folks feel welcome. I don't understand what's happening. What's, what tends to be happening in those cases is there is equity works not being done. Mm-hmm. It might be in the title, but it, it's probably not being done if, if that's the repeated condition that's happening, right? If we're not seeing that diverse representation. And moreover, if we're not seeing distinct outcomes that are showing uh, that folks are having needs met, right, in different from different demographic backgrounds, right? I love that as a simple, like, litmus test. Are everyone's needs being met here? Right. Like, don't have to go hire a giant consulting firm to do an intensive study. I mean, you still might want to if you have a huge organization, but you could also just ask. Yeah, absolutely. Both and, right? (laughs) Right. There is probably a lot of value in doing some of these studies because people can learn a lot from data. Yeah. Uh, And... We are data-driven people. (laughs) Exactly. And you don't have to wait for that data analysis to start to see... Like some of these disparities are so egregious and apparent. Communities that aren't being served at all or or very limited amount, food deserts, right? Like there's some things that are so easily spotted that depending on your industry, you might have your industry or your business or your team might have a direct influence over, right? So it's you know it's relative to, to to what entry point you're coming in at. But regardless. A key question for measurement when we're doing equity work, distinct from diversity and inclusion work, is who's benefited and who's burdened by what we're producing or by the decisions that we're making, right? That's, I would say that's the essence of equity work, who's benefited and who's burdened, right? And what are, and then of course, you you know, you go deeper and you start to say, what are our indicators to suggest who's benefited and who's burdened? And then it goes back to the earlier part of our conversation where it's like, Am I deciding that on behalf of other people or are the folks that are most disproportionately impacted in a negative way or left out, aren't not at the table historically, are they here to also um, help co-understand, co-create, inform who's been burdened and who's benefited and what potential solutions might look like? Nathan, thank you so much for that. I think it also really illustrates the complexity of what it really means, what it really means, and which is why we wanted to have these conversations 
for free. Just listen to this and maybe take a couple notes out of this. Does this help your organization? Does it help something you've been thinking about? How complex is this really? And what step back or pause or breath to really advance the work you want to advance? What should really be happening? What do you actually need to be setting up upstream? I'm a really big fan of setting up systems so far upstream that you feel like you're not moving forward yet. And that's not the intention, but the intention is that so you actually can move forward and not get stopped down the way. And um, I'm going to segue here to say, Nathan clearly understands the complexity of it. I always feel like his trusty sidekick when we have these conversations. Um, it feels really good to unpack it at a deeper level. Um, Nathan, where can people find you to learn more about you and your work and what you offer in the world? Yeah, thank you. Um, first, just great conversation with you. Really appreciate uh, being able to dive into these topics. Um, I can be found at EDI Mindfulness Consulting. That can be a quick Google. Um, and certainly by my name on LinkedIn, um, Nathan Baptiste. And uh, happy, happy to continue these conversations. I'm so glad we're going to keep having them. So I will post Nathan's um, website and um link for LinkedIn in the show notes if you want to find them. And as usual, if you want to find me, you can find me at ellenwyomingdeloy.com. Nathan, thanks so much. Looking forward to our next conversation. Likewise. Thank you. Thanks so much for tuning in today and listening to the show. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen. And if you love the show, leave a five-star review so others can find us. To learn more about my work and what I do, go to ellenwyomingdeloy.com. Thanks. See you next time.